because consciousness is such an important aspect of our investigation because it's the knower the one we most likely entitle me the Buddha has something else to say about it more than just that it arises the conditioned by mentality and materiality and vice versa that mentality and materiality arise because of consciousness he says like this I'll read the whole thing it was said with mentality and materiality as condition there's consciousness how that is so ananda should be understood in this way if consciousness were not to gain a footing in mentality and materiality would an origination of the master suffering of future birth aging and death be discerned certainly not venerable sir therefore ananda this is the cause source origin and condition for consciousness namely mentality and materiality it is to this extent ananda that one can be born age and die pass away and re-arise to this extent that there is a pathway for designation to this extent that there's a pathway for language to this extent that there's a pathway for description to this extent that there is a sphere for wisdom to this extent that the round samsara round of birth and death turns for describing this state of being that is when there's mentality materiality together with consciousness so i dare say that needs a bit of explanation doesn't it well it is also explained <coughs> There are commentaries and sub-commentaries, but unfortunately they also need explanation. <laughs> anyway, what we're looking at here is that the Buddha is talking about a pathway, a pathway for designation, a pathway for language, a pathway for description, and a sphere for wisdom. And all of them, based on this consciousness, which is a condition for mind and body and mind and body being a condition for consciousness now first of all it's that interplay we don't have just a one direction we don't just have that mind and body are conditioned by consciousness we have it the other way around too that consciousness is conditioned by mind and body that there is no consciousness outside of that so that is we could say we could look at it as if there was a sort of um, um, a spring where the water is turning and that is what's happening with consciousness and mind and body it's turning together it's usually called a vortex where everything sort of churns together now designation language and description are the three ways that we make statements the first statement we make in the mind it's like a concept or an idea of which we have billions 
we don't always follow through on them, luckily, but we do follow through on a fair number of them. So that's our designation. The mind designs something. And then we have words, language. Next thing, we say it. And even though the idea might be totally absurd, we still think it's all right, so we say it. And then the description that we put in is what we think is describing reality. Now, the, this is what happens constantly. And this is actually an, an explanation of mind contact. Now, you know we have six senses. Five which are going out, seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, and one which is in the mind. And that mind one is the one that's being addressed here, the one that has concepts and ideas. And then we talk about it, and we think we're explaining reality. These are our tools, with the tools that we evaluate everything and that we communicate with. And it goes on all the time. It's to be found in our daily life from morning to night. It's to be found wherever there are human beings. There's a constant evaluation, judgment. Constant judgment. And this evaluation does not always judge other people. It does it often enough. But it very often judges us, ourselves, but it also judges other things. And then we communicate that. So we have evaluation and communication, which is based on those three things that we do, ideas, words, and explanations. Now, in order to do that, we have to have references. And we find those in the world. And that's actually what the Buddha means by pathway. The world of references is our pathway, the pathway which leads us to these dis designations, language, and description. Now, in order to understand what the Buddha is saying here, the first thing we have to do is make sure that we understand the words. So we have to communicate. We don't have to evaluate. We just have to communicate. We don't have to figure it out whether it's right or wrong. We just have to hear it or see it. Now, with this pathway, which is the world of reference, we make order out of chaos. What we try to do is we, have to, we want to have an orderly world to live in. If it's chaotic, we can't handle it. Now, some people, obviously, which we consider not very mentally well, live in a chaotic world. They can't make order out of it. But as long as we are what we consider sane, and that's only us considering that. The Buddha said it's not so. But anyway, we consider this sane. We like to have an orderly world to live in. We can make order out of all this input that's coming into us. So we have references. And these references is what we latch onto in the world. And they have to have some meaning and significance for us. So the things we see, hear, taste, touch, smell, and think are supposed to be significant. 
if they're not significant, then we can't make order out of it because then immediately the question arises, why am I thinking this? This is nonsense. Or the question arises, why am I looking at that? Not necessary. So in everyday life, this would make it very chaotic. So we are constantly putting significance to everything that we think, and may it be ever so absurd, it's significant because we have thought it, which makes it then fairly orderly for us. Everything has meaning. It's meaningful. <laughs> now that some of it is totally meaningless only arises in our mind in meditation. When we have tried to be concentrated and we have a lot of meaningless thoughts arise, it finally dawns on every meditator that thinking is not always meaningful and certainly not significant. It's very often meaningless. So that one only learns in meditation that thoughts can be totally meaningless, particularly if they're not deliberately directed. And most of our thoughts aren't in daily life. They're not deliberately directed. When we want to learn something, then we deliberately direct the thought. But very often it just goes haywire and it just goes all over the place. So only a meditator actually comes and in, gets into touch with that, that there's a lot of meaningless and insignificant sense contact. In ordinary way of life, we try to make it meaningful and to make it appear as if there's something really important about it. This is why, of course, we also think that we have somebody special. But that comes later. Now, in order to make this meaning and significance out of that, we, of course, have to use the mind for that. There is no I intrinsic meaning or intrinsic significance in anything that we see, hear, taste, touch, or smell, or think. It's impossible. Because if it was intrinsically important and meaningful and significant, then everybody would have to do it. But seeing that we're always doing our own thing and everybody else is doing their thing and everybody is happily alive, or unhappily alive, I should say, then there is no intrinsic significance. But we, in our minds, do that. We make that happen. And because an unenlightened and the Buddha says uninstructed worldling, and we certainly only have the first excuse and not the second one, has, unfortunately, feeling with desire, feeling with craving, and perception which already has a kind of bias towards that which is pleasurable, and has the intention in the mind, the reaction, which is either like or dislike, which in the Buddha's terminology is greed or hate, what we make out of those things that we contact is discolored by all that. And it is never the real thing. It is that what we make it to be. So when we see something that gives us a good feeling, we say it's beautiful, and then we want it. And if we see something that gives us a nasty feeling, we say it's ugly, and we want to reject it. 
Now, this goes on so perpetually and so without any notice in the mind that that is volitional that we have no idea that it's false. We have no idea that we're doing something which is totally wrong. Everybody's doing it, but that's not even a matter of concern. I mean, we don't really care that much what everybody else is doing. We think that we know what we're doing. And on a worldly level, we probably do know what we're doing. But on the worldly level, the feeling that we have is connected to craving. And because of that, because there's a bias towards pleasure, and because there is that volition of like and dislike, because of that, everything's discolored. It doesn't matter what it is. What we see, what we hear, taste, touch, smell, and think. It can't be taken away from that until we understand that the whole thing is dependent arising. Then we can, of course, have a totally different bias. And that totally different bias, then, is one which is also connected to equanimity to even-mindedness, not to indifference, but to equanimity. But that has to come first with the practice. So first, what we are looking at is how it actually happens all the time. And because our attention span is also very um, fleeting, because in daily life we don't try to be fully concentrated what we see, hear, taste, touch, and smell is m constantly changing. And so what we are relating to is never one real thing, but a whole conglomeration of stuff that we are relating to. We don't relate to the processes is happening and the one-pointed and complete attention, but it's an attention span which goes back and forth from the object to the desire or the lack of desire, the resistance, and moves in all those um, four mental uh, appearances so that we never get the real thing out of it. We're always sitting in the middle of it all, and that brings with it all the Restlessness, the disquiet, the unfulfillment, the lack of total peacefulness. By now it must have become clear that peace cannot exist in the world with people the way they are. It's just not possible. But it's possible to find peace for oneself. And it needs a totally different relationship to what we're doing. Now, when we have that fleeting attention, what we look at is distorted, because only if we look at its one-pointed attention can it be a one-pointed thing. For instance, if we were meditating and our attention is flitting from one thing to another, obviously we can't get any kind of complete concentration where there's any kind of peacefulness or joy arising. 
All we see is all these flitting things that it touches on a thought, it touches on the breath, it touches on a, an idea, a feeling, a sensation. Nothing is happening. It's all mixed up and muddled together. This is what we do in daily life. It's all mixed up and muddled together. And because of that, the world looks um, as if it had something in it where we only able to touch upon it. And that's that constant um, sort of um, temptation to find that what is there which we're not touching upon. So it's a distortion, a distortion of attention. And because of all that, we of course have the not only biases, but we have emotions. We re react emotionally. We react, of, of course, emotionally to what we like and what we don't like. I mean, there's no other way to react to it. That has to have an emotion in it. And some of the things we like a lot, and we react a lot with a lot of emotion. And some things we hate a lot, so there's a lot of emotion. And with all that emotion, of course, nothing is clear anymore. Emotions are like waves of the ocean. We can't see anything. Now, what we do, all that what I've just described, is common usage. That's the way everybody does it. And because of that, it's not even apparent. That's the way the world lives. And in Buddhist terminology, it's called the collective hallucination of the world. It's a nice term, isn't it? <laughs> and because everybody has this hallucination, of course, we go along with it. I mean, what else could one do until the dukkha has become so strong that one finally realizes, I've got to do something. This can't go on like that. And that's why always dukkha is always the beginning of the path. It's um, almost always the beginning of the pathway when one realizes this is not the way it can go on. But of course, then one has to really find where one is going wrong. So we go along with everything that the world does. And then comes the personal aspect of all that. Now, the personal aspect of all that is that we use these tools for reference, which I've described, which is this designation, the thought in the mind, then the language, the and then the description of it, and our relationship to everything that happens. We do that, use that as primary importance for referring to me. Who am I in all this mess that's going on? All the things that contact our senses, all the things that we are reacting to. Who is this I? So the tool of reference that is uh, used, the most important reference that we have is the I in the middle of it all. And that's why every person has that feeling of being the center of the universe. That's a natural feeling. Of course, it's absurd. I mean, how can be five billion people have five billion different centers of the universe? It's a total absurdity. But everybody stands in the middle because it's our reference point. We refer to all the sense contacts as having done by me. So obviously, I have to be in the middle. Now, we don't say that to ourselves because it's too absurd. We don't say such absurd things to ourselves, but we feel it. And because of that, there's only one person. That's really important. There are a few that are on the fringe that are also important. But the one that's really important is always me. Now, this is all natural. That's the way the world does it. But it isn't making anybody happy. 
If you know anybody who is really and totally happy, please ask that person how they did it. They are very hard to find. So all this, what the world is doing, it's totally natural. Everybody's doing it and nobody's happy. So obviously there's got to be something else that can be done. Buddha says there is. But we first have to see what we're doing. And now again, I'd like to caution you. Please don't take this on just as saying, oh yes, that's what the Buddha said, all right then. Check it out. Is everything that you do with the senses concerned with the reference point of me? I'm seeing, I'm hearing, I'm tasting, I'm touching, smelling and thinking. And obviously, because I'm an intelligent person and there's no question about that, I'm thinking correctly. What else? I mean, only stupid people don't think correctly, and so I'm thinking correctly. And this is the way it is. Now, one needs to really experience that in order to see the absurdity of it, because it can't be right. And yet, nobody ever thinks that way until they know about what the, the Buddha's teaching. We don't ever get to that until we hear this, and then we start thinking about it. So then we have this reference point. Now, it's actually a concept, but we have to get to that, how we do this, how we get this concept going. It's a, it's a result of this me illusion, but we have to get to that. So, because it is connected to our feelings, which are craving and clinging, and craving means both, huh? not wanting and wanting, because these are our feelings, we have not a clue. We don't ever suspect that there's something wrong there. That this is a totally wrong way of approaching reality. Only if we hear this can we start having an, an inkling of it. In the world at large, if you tell this to people, they think, it's totally impossible. How can I think falsely? I know what I'm doing, and uh, I'm quite successful too, so why, why should it be wrong? Now, we don't understand, and this is a very important point, that the origin of our description is internal. We describe what happens with the mind. It's our mind-made idea how we describe it. But we think that we are actually describing what's happening. And this is the most important point. That's a linchpin of it all. That's where it all revolves around. That because we are thinking it, we have the idea that that's the way it is. Now, this is something that we can be become aware of, but it takes a fair bit of attention to oneself. Now, we've got all the time in the world here, and we've got it nice and quiet, so we can pay attention to ourselves. And this is where it's all happening in this person and this person is then having all sorts of reactions to that so we are think we are thinking that whatever it is that is happening with our senses and our reactions that is me doing that but we don't realize that this is only a thought only internal nothing nobody out there that can actually vouch for that there's no way that the sense object or the eye object or the eye base or the eye consciousness could ever vouch for the fact that I am seeing. 
There's no way that this could be underwritten. It's an idea that we have. And with that idea, of course, we are in good company. We are in this collective hallucination. So then, because of this, these ideas have a reason. We have a reason for having this idea that this is me. Because what we like to do and what we actually do with that, we establish a territory for ourselves and we establish also an identity. Now, this identity, that's me, has a lot of qualities, a lot of um, um, abilities, a lot of disabilities, uh, has a lot of identifications. So that is the identity, this identity, which is established with the idea I'm seeing, hearing, whatever. So with that identity, of course, which has all these um, qualities, we also establish our viewpoints. Because the identity that who we are has a lot of um, different uh, identifications, male and female and mother or father and son or daughter or um, intelligent and uh, successful or unsuccessful or um, good meditator, bad meditator, uh, whatever it is, lots and lots and lots, a whole string of identifications. If you like, you can write them down, all the things that are your identifications, far more than what I've just said. And uh, with that, of course, there are viewpoints. Each identification brings a viewpoint with it. As a father, I'm useless, but as a son, I'm wonderful, or vice versa, you know. Or as a lover, I'm great, but as a husband, I'm useless, or whatever. You know, anything, anything will do. With the identification comes the viewpoint. With has, there has to be, because the identification is made up in the mind. And so there has to be something to stabilize it. The viewpoint stabilizes the identification. If we just say all these identifications in a string of words, and there's no view with it, it's meaningless. It's not significant. But we want to make things meaningful and significant. So obviously, if we are a great traveler, then we can say, I have, I'm, a, I'm a great traveler, and I've seen the world, and uh, I have understood that it's better to live uh, uh, like the natives do. Well, that's our viewpoint, you know, from being a great traveler. But if we just have this idea of great traveler and no viewpoint with it, it's not meaningful. There's got to be something behind it to make it give it some significance. And the territory which we establish is what's mine. Whatever is mine. The house, the furniture, the people, the, the, the job, whatever it is. That, that is where I have some exercise of power which is one of the uh, dreadful things that happen in human relationships, the exercise of power, and particularly in the one-to-one relationship, who's got more power? And then it goes up and down and sideways, and the whole thing falls apart. It's the territory which we establish over which we have power. If you look at the birds, and there's two lots um, making nests outside of my room, that's their territory, and they don't want anybody near it. If I just come to peek over the windowsill, already there's big excitement. This is their territory, and it's their power there. 
that's all that is. And if there's any threat, there's fear, and of course in our case, aggression. They're too small, they can't be aggressive because I'm too big. But uh, we have not, we have both, we have fear and aggression. When our p territory is in any kind of danger and our power in any way being threatened. And we have that, of course, not on the small scale in the family. We've got it in the big scale between countries, and then we have dreadful things happening. And uh, it's to be found anywhere but amongst the animals, amongst the people, everywhere where we look. So it's a control system. We, we want to control our territory, and we have the identification with the views. Now, that's the way it happens. Now we can do it differently. Now we have a choice. <coughs> Buddha says the pathway for designation are the five aggregates. And again, we will say that we are looking at the four aggregates of the mind because we don't want to refer to the body because it's so obvious with the body, although even though it's obvious, it's still uh, a bother, but still let's look at the mind. So the pathway for designation are the aggregates. Now, in our case, in the case of the unenlightened uh, human being, the designation which uh, happens, the designing in the mind which happens, is that these four parts of the mind are not only me, but they also belong to me. It's mine. This is my territory, and I'm in charge. I've got control, and I've got a viewpoint about it. The viewpoint is that it's called me, and then all the other identifications with it, and the territory that this is where nobody can get in. Now, obviously, this is nonsense, because we are not in charge. Because if we were in charge, why does the body get sick when it's supposed to be well? Why does it get knee pains when it's supposed to meditate? Why does the mind throw up all sorts of silly ideas where one gets angry or disgusted or any uh, bored instead of uh, being totally one-pointed? Why do all these things happen? Why are we having unpleasant feelings when we only like pleasant ones? Obviously, we're not in charge. But we can't get that through our heads that we're not in charge. We, we keep on thinking. We are in charge. And we're going to make things happen the way we think they should be. And we make other people going to act the way we think they should act towards us. And so we are in charge. We've, won we've got a territory. We're never going to be in charge. It just doesn't work. The thing dies away on us just at the moment when we'd rather be alive. It just doesn't work. And because of this dichotomy of what we'd like and what we've got, we don't, we're not happy. We've got something we don't like. We've got things happening which obviously show us, should show us, I should say, that we're not in charge. And we don't believe it. We don't look. We make up ideas. And this is what this pathway is all about. We use the pathway of the mind with the designations which we think up, which are concepts, instead of the pathway of the aggregates, which show us what really is. So, the simple explanation of that is that if we were to look at any one of the aggregates without looking at it as mine, 
we would know all about it. When a feeling is just a feeling, when hearing is just hearing, when the body is just the body, where's me? Why is there anything to control? Why is there anything that we need to do? Why do other people have to do anything? They're also just the feeling, the perception, the sense contact. But this is a difficulty. If it were so easy as I'm just saying it, well, why don't we just do it and get, over, get it over with and all go home? But, but it isn't that easy. But it is simple. It isn't easy, but it's simple. So this is the practice point. When a feeling arises, it's just a feeling. Whether that is an emotion or whether it is a sensation. Now I'm sure you can all distinguish between emotion and sensation. Sensation is physical and emotion is all this stuff that comes up and seems to come from the heart. It's just that. It's just a feeling. That's all. Now, the minute we can do that, even once, and look at it and see it for what it is. The mind has the ability to step back from it and become more objective. That objectivity, that is what is our chance of seeing ourselves the way we really are and stepping out of all dukkha. As I've said before, and I'll say it again and probably say it to the end of the course and then through the whole next one, See Dukkha, see it clearly in all its facets, but there's no need to suffer from it. It just is. It's everywhere. Why? Because we want to make things the way they not are, but we should be learning to see things the way they really are. And this is this whole difficulty, that whole dichotomy that the whole of humanity lives in. We want to have things the way we think they should be. Everybody should be nice, pleasant, loving, appreciative, supportive, uh, only nice feelings. Everything should be just rosy. Well, obviously it isn't. And were it just rosy, we'd, get because we'd probably be terribly bored with it anyway. But since it never is, we'll never find out. So, on the contrary, everything has both in it, pleasant and unpleasant, whatever it is. And we are constantly reacting and rejecting and constantly grabbing and clinging. And if we, because we think not only that these belong to us, but we also think that we have a right to do that. We have assumed that right. We have a right to want the nice and to reject the not nice. Well, of course we have a right, but we also have then the right to be unhappy. And uh, that's, of course, the easiest thing to do because it just doesn't, is not any control system available. And this control system is actually called me. That's the control system. And that's why me can't get rid of me because the control system doesn't work. There has to be the understanding that it isn't, that this is a mind-made concept. And it's actually... Probably not that difficult to understand, or is it? But to live it, that's it. That's where it all breaks down. Because when the emotion of anger comes up, oh, I'm, I'm so angry. And when the emotion of wanting comes up, well, I want this. And 
I'm going to do everything I can to get it. And so with that, the whole thing always disappears into the mist of having heard it once and that's it. It's got to be practiced. So with every aggregate, including body, look at them. Look at body. Look at sense contact. Any one of them. Doesn't matter which one. Any feeling. Any labeling. Any reaction. Mental formation. And look at it and see which Where can I find the me in that? Is it not just arising and disappearing again? So that's why the Buddha says, depend arising is very deep because there's no person, no agent. There is, behind all this, there's no knower. There's only the knowing. Now this is really a very important statement. There's no knower, there's knowing. All of us have that ability, knowing. But why do we put a knower in? The knower comes in because we always want everything to be the way we figure it out. But we can't figure it out because the law of nature and absolute reality already exist. There's nothing to figure out. It's already there. And with that law of nature, and with the absolute reality being there, all we have to do is recognize it. That's all we need to do. And of course, for that we have to have a calm mind, obviously. I mean, if we don't have a calm mind for that, then we'll never do it. So. distracted mind or a disgruntled mind or an upset mind or an angry mind or a restless mind, an anxious mind uh, can't do this. So that's why we need the calmness of the meditation, the meditative process of the absorptions in order to have the mind calm enough so that it doesn't have to react. It, it doesn't always need to react. So then we can see maybe that there's only knowing and no knower. And all these things, the knowing, the action, all these things that are happening are moment to moment arising and ceasing. But to see moment to moment arising and ceasing will not take away the idea that I know moment to moment arising and ceasing. And that's its downfall. We've got to find out that anything that we become aware of is just plain awareness, that's all. Now, all our ideas, everything that we have in the mind, it comes back to the junction of consciousness and mind and body. Now, there's a nice story about that. It's one of the Jataka tales, actually, and it really expresses this very well. It's a story about a hare that was sitting under a mango tree and was fast asleep. It was just sitting under the tree, fast asleep. And then he heard a big bang. 
a mango had fallen off the tree. And he woke up. He heard this big bang and he woke up. And he thought, the earth is splitting up. We're all going to be lost. I have to tell all the other hares so that they can quickly get away. So he ran off and found some other hares and said, come on, come on, quick, we've got to save ourselves. The earth is splitting up. So the hare said, oh, dear, oh, dear, let's go. So they ran off. And when they were all running, they met a bunch of deer. And the deer said, where are you running? What's the matter? And the hare said, the earth is splitting up. Come on, come on, let's go. So after the hare and the deer were running, they, they met a few uh, bear. And uh, the bear said, what's the matter? Why are you running? They said, the earth is splitting up. Come on, let's go. So the bear come, came along too. They were a bit slower, but they came along too. And then they met a whole lot of tigers. And the tiger said, what's the matter? Why are you running? And the tiger, they said, you know, the earth is splitting up. Come on, get along with us. So the tigers also ran. And after they had been running for quite a long time, they met some lions. And there was a main lion who was in charge of the whole uh, tribe. And the lion, the main lion said, he said, where are you running to? And they said, the earth is splitting up. Come on, let's go. And this main lion said, don't be so silly. There's a huge crevice right in front of you. You go one step further and you're all going to go down that crevice. So they all stopped. And they said to the lion, what are we going to do? So the main line said, who told you the earth is splitting up? And they all looked around and they said, well, the tiger said so. Oh, no, the bear said so. Oh, no, the deer said so. No, the hare said so. And then they went to, he went to the hare. Which, which hare said that the earth is splitting up? And they all looked around and they said, that one. <laughs> and uh, so he went to that one. He said, why do you think the earth is splitting up? He said, you know, it was a terrible bang. And he said, where was this bang? It was back there. So the lion said, come with me. So they both went. And the lion said, where is this bang? And so they came back to this mango tree. And there was a mango lying on the, on the ground. And the lion said, is that it? And they said, yes, that's it. <laughs> so they, they got the whole tribe of uh, all the animals they could find in total disarray just because this hare heard a bang. Now that is the junction of consciousness with mentality and materiality, consciousness of the bang, joined with mind and body and making a story out of it. And that's what we do all the time from morning to night. We constantly make a storyline. And the storyline is not only that we believe it, just like the hare did. He believed it too, of course, and all the others went along and believed it too. No, we then get out of the storyline a new one. And then we have our whole life mixed up and messed up with the views of something that happened 50 years ago or 30 years ago or 20 years ago. And that's still going on. We heard a big bang, so the earth must be breaking up. Somebody said something, so that's the way it must be. And that then carries with us. We carry that around with us, not particularly as memory, but as an as a sort of an injunction in our mind so that we then discolor everything according to this uh, one or two or three happenings, just like the hair did. So this is our, the way we do things. Now, there's a possibility of doing it differently. And that's, of course, 
the beauty of the Buddha's teaching. He shows us a way out of this. He shows us a way to perfect happiness. But it's not a band-aid. It's surgery. And uh, it's not, you know, everything is wonderful and we're always going to be happy from now on. But it's getting rid of the underlying cause for the difficulty. Now, what we have to do, he gives us um, instructions how to go about this. When we refer to our seeing and whatever we're doing, and we again quite clearly refer to it as I'm listening, I'm practicing, I'm meditating, I'm liking, I'm disliking. Get back to it, take a step back and see who is this I? Why am I saying I? What is this necessary? Is it really needed? Can I see it in a different way? Can I see that there's only hearing and that there's only knowing and that there's meditating and then there's knowing? Is it possible? Now this is a mind, a way of doing it with the mind differently than we've always done it. And of course we're going to forget over and over again and forget over and over again, but never mind, just remember once in a while and look at it and see, can I see it that way? Now, when the mind says, no, I can't, well, try again another time. But is it possible? Hearing is hearing, seeing is seeing, sitting is sitting, without me doing that. What we are actually trying to do, we are trying to have this self, and this self implies a self, a, a, a thing, something that is... Uh, well, has a solidity to it. And that's what we all think, isn't it? There's a solid person. But it also implies another thing. It implies this control system that we are actually in, in charge. Now, check that out. How much in charge are we? We could certainly can make the body move if the mind says, go somewhere, we can do that. But can we be in charge of happiness? Can we be in charge of peacefulness? Can we be in charge of only having that what we want? Is there that control system available to us? We're certainly trying. And it also implies autonomy. That everything that we have and are is an autonomous system. Well, depend arising tells us quite clearly that there's no such thing as autonomy. Check depend arising. Where does feeling come from? Where does craving come from? Where does contact come from? Check it. Check it out and see. Is there any autonomy in here? What about all the sense contacts? It's very interesting because our aggregates are obviously impermanent. The whole lot of them are impermanent. Every feeling ceases, every perception ceases, every sense contact ceases, every body ceases. And not only that, but there are conditions. Everything has a condition. There's no autonomy. Now, they, very often people get the idea when they're told that they should check out whether there's really an I sitting in there or whether there's only knowing, that they then should avoid using the word I. Well... 
The Buddha says, these chitta, chitta is a person's name in this case, are merely names, expressions, turns of speech, designations in common use in the world. And of these, a Tathagata, Tathagata is a Buddha, makes use indeed, but he does not misapprehend them. So in other words, keep on using the word I. The Buddha also used it, but and when he used it, he did not misunderstand it. So because we can't talk to each other without using I and you and me and mine, we've got to do that. So we don't have to try and invent a new language, but we have to try and find a new way of looking at things. And if we find a new way of looking at things, of course everything is new. And then it has far, a far different uh, um, perspective and a far different and a far greater um, width to it and breadth. Everything has a much different appearance than when we look at it always in the way we always have. Now, there are two things possible in the mind. And one we're doing all the time, and one is the one I'm saying we should be doing. Now, the one we're always doing uh, all the time is that we are looking at things through our ideas. So, as I've already explained, that um, we ascribe qualities to things which aren't even there. So, for instance, we see a house and we might think, oh, that's a very nice residence, I wish I could afford it. But if we got nearer to it, we might find out it's a school. That's an idea we had in the mind. Or we might see a person and we think, oh, that's a very attractive girl, nice long pigtail. And when we come in front of that person, we find out it's a man. It's not even an attractive girl at all. And we do that constantly. We are constantly ascribing qualities, which includes this quality of belonging to me, to the things that we see or hear. And we have an idea about them. So this is what we do. We, through the mind contact that we make, first there's the sense contact, right? And then the mind explains it. And then we have this description of it. Now, this is our, the whole downfall. That's all it is. This is what this whole story is all about. That when we have the sense contact, any one of the six, and then are become aware of that sense contact, then we describe it and add qualities to it because we think that is, which are based on our uh, wishes and we think that these qualities are real. And this is what happens to us with all the things that we uh, think are me, we are adding to it, this is mine. But the other way of looking at things is that those things which really exist, we don't have to think about them. They exist without us thinking about them. The sense content exists without us thinking about it. But the description of it, we have to think about. So the things that really are, they exist without our thought process. Whether we think about them or not makes not the slightest difference to them. They just are. And they do not depend on our the explanations. Now, for instance, we could say like this. There's an earthquake. 
So our explanation is tragedy. But that's what we have in the mind. The reality of the earthquake is that it's the earth element and the fire element meeting each other and that there's an eruption. That's all. That's earthquake. That's the reality of it. The next step is what we make out of it. And we do that constantly with everything. There's nothing that we ever um, leave out where we don't have our own personal explanation. And these personal explanations that we make are, of course, differ from person to person. There isn't ever a true one. Never. There can't be a true one because all of them are based on the me concept. So what we need to do is become aware of reality without having to describe it in the way we think it is. Now, if we become aware of reality without describing it, the first thing that we can do, and I've already said this many times, but here it comes in again, using our sense contact, seeing just seeing, hearing just hearing, the eye only sees color and form, the ear only hears sound, that's all, finished. Now, if you can do that just once, you'll know what this is all about. Hearing just sound. And then, having done that, actually having done that, then you know that all the concepts that you carry around in the mind about whom you like and whom you don't like and how you would like life to be and how it isn't and how you would have liked to have been in the past and it isn't or wasn't, it's all concept. has nothing to do with reality. All made up in the mind. He should have done, he shouldn't have done, they should have done, this should have happened, that should have happened, I would like this, I would like that. None of that is real. The only thing is that there is knowing. That's it. Now, if we can get that done even once or twice, we will know the difference between the way we relate to the world and the way we could relate to the world. If we could relate to the world without all our fancy descriptions, everything is the way it is. It just is, isn't it? And what are we going to do about it? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. What does anybody do about it? Nothing. It just is the way it is. And it's constantly arising and ceasing. And the whole universe is arising and ceasing. Only that takes eons of time. But with all that, we've got all these ideas and concepts. And the worst of one of them is, of course, the me concept. Now, when you do seeing and hearing, which are the most prominent ones, and just seeing and just hearing, you will at first not be able to do that, but then just step back and try to stop at sound and try to stop at just color and shape. And if you can do that, you will know the difference. Now, obviously, in daily life, you're often in need of explanation because if there's a truck coming and I'm standing in the middle of the road, I will have to describe it as truck and danger and get out of the way. But this is not happening here. And if you can do seeing and hearing without the conceptual thinking about it, you can then leave out the me. You can see that there's nothing but constant arising and ceasing depend on conditions which are never static, which are always arising and ceasing too.
So when we see that, we can see the whole round, the round of samsara. And with that, we get what the Buddha said, the wisdom. And the wisdom, which he said is as a sphere of wisdom possible, which means that we look at the aggregates just like that, as I've just explained them. And he says about that, I'll read you what he says. Here it is. Whatever material form there is, whatever feeling, perception, mental formation and consciousness, past, future or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, all that one sees with perfect wisdom as it really is. This is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. For one knowing and seeing thus, there are no more ego conceptions, conceptions of mine and underlying tendencies to conceit in regard to this conscious body and all external signs. Which means a person who can do that is enlightened. And maybe one should mention at this point that's all the Buddha taught. Meditation for one reason only, for enlightenment. No other reason for it. So, obviously, the path to enlightenment is the one that we can enjoy now. Whether we actually get to the destination or not, it doesn't really matter. But if we are taking a journey and we're only thinking about the destination, then we're not going to enjoy the journey. So we need to enjoy the journey. But by the same token, we want to know and need to know where is this journey leading to. And that's where this journey is leading to. And whether we go slow or fast, it doesn't matter at all. And where the whole thing hinges upon, it hinges upon our misconception. It's a misconception which is so widespread and so deeply ingrained that it is all around us, this is everywhere. And our whole social system is built up on it. Our whole econom uh, economy is built up on it. Every kind of um, governmental agency is built up. Anything that we know is built up on that misconception. So we live in it, but we don't have to go along with it. People do all sorts of things not to go along with the establishment. They, they start eating different food. They start doing uh, things which uh, the establishment frowns upon. They even start meditating. So why not do something different from what the concept is of the whole world? The whole world has this concept of this is me, and me has to have a certain way of doing things. But the long as we have that, we can have a guarantee that we won't be happy, nor will we be peaceful. It's not possible, because we have no control. There's absolutely no control. But the minute we start seeing this clearly, and stepping back from all that, then it becomes possible. Then not that the control becomes possible, but the one who is having all these problems, whatever they're called, no matter what the problem is called, that one has disappeared then. So that's why the Buddha says, there's suffering but no sufferer. There's the deed but no doer. There's a path but no one to enter. And there's Nibbana but no one to attain it. 
So it hinges upon having, instead of a misconception in the mind, to leave all the concepts out and see reality as it is without a description, without describing anything, just seeing it, no description. Now, obviously, that's not easy, but once in a while it works, and the more often it works, the easier it becomes. So that might be enough on this uh, subject. I think I've told you all the main points of this. Now, if you have questions, this is the time to ask them. Yes. Aya, during this process, is it a process of diminishment of the feeling of I so that there is less and less as Mm -hmm. it goes until it's just gone? Yes. That's quite true. That's the way it works. Um, The practice of it is that every time that we are with uh, that I concept, that we step back and see whether we can let go of it. And it does diminish gradually. And as it diminishes gradually, the insight becomes stronger. And as the insight becomes stronger, one can eventually take the step, the step of actually letting go. And when we can let actually let go, then there is a possibility of really um, having the experience for a moment. When you have that experience for a moment, then the feeling of I returns. This is a long process, and that just continues to happen until eventually it doesn't return. Uh, it, there's a four steps to be taken. You've got to do it four times. The fourth time it doesn't return. And the third time it only returns very minimally. And the third time it also, when it's uh, the, uh, the second time, the uh, return is also less. And how do the eight steps of the jhanas relate to that? Is that just preparatory work for the mm-hmm. mind to experience that? Or is there some other connection? Well, there are two connections. One is, as you say, the preparatory work for the mind, because in the higher jhanas, in the immaterial jhanas, uh, one knows for, for, from one's own experience that there's nobody there. So it's preparatory. But the other aspect is that the mind is quiet. And it can actually you know, see the, the depth of this and the truth of this. So a no-I mind is always quiet? A no-I mind is quiet, yes. It doesn't have anybody there that isn't quiet. (laughs) 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 Okay, what else? Anything else? Yeah. In in the the sense contact and the feeling and perception, you you want to recognize each of those steps independently. In taking a sound, where does this feeling and recognition of that sound and feeling come <coughs> of the sound of a bird versus the sound of a truck? Depend arising. Mm-hmm. Dependent arising. Conditions, causes, and effects. Dependent arising. Do you know how these four things arise in dependence on each other? Do you? Yes. Okay. Depend arising. Always cause, condition, and effect. Nothing else. 
The Buddha says there is nothing else. All is dependent arising. Everything. Now that is also worthwhile checking out. Can you find something that isn't dependently arisen? This is all very important because it directs the mind towards the investigation and the contemplation of reality. So here we have also dependent arising. Everything is dependently arisen. See, there's another reason why I tell you to find the pathway for your meditation. It's dependently arisen, the concentration. It's depending on having found your right pathway. And the more we see dependent arising, the less, the less we see me. And the better it gets. Anything else? Perfectly clear, huh? <laughs> yes, uh, quite so. Um, difficult because it goes actually totally opposite of what we usually do. So I try to describe what we usually do and then describe what we could be doing. And because it's exactly opposite, actually, and uh, totally different, we fall back into our way of doing it, and then we can't see the other. You know, it's like one of these pictures that children color, where you have the head of a cow in the branch of a tree. Now you see it, now you don't. Ah, oh, there's the cow. Oh, no, where is she gone? You know, and that's why it's difficult. But that's why it needs to be practiced. It's, uh, this is only information. Everything I say is information, that's all. Information and, uh, and, and methods, that's all. Once one practices and tries to do it in two ways, the one way is a meditative absorption, the concentrative path of the mind, and the other part is the investigation, the contemplation. Then these things become more and more clear until they are no longer uh, so um, shadowy and as, uh, escape, don't escape so easily anymore. And please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. Think of yourself from head to toe as a golden vessel which contains nothing but love and compassion. Nothing else, only that. No dislikes, no rejections, no resentments, no worries, no fears. Just love and compassion, a golden vessel the size of yourself and feel it seeping into you filling you and surrounding you this love and compassion
pour the contents of that golden vessel, love and compassion, into the heart of the person nearest you. Now pour the contents of the golden vessel, the love and compassion, into the hearts of everyone here. Let everyone partake of the contents of your heart, sharing it, distributing it, giving it away as a gift. Now pour the contents of the golden vessel of love and compassion into the hearts of your parents, giving them the greatest gift that you have to offer. Think of those people who are close to you and pour all your love and compassion into their hearts, filling them and embracing them with your love and your compassion.
Now think of your friends and make them aware how much you love them. Pour all you have in your heart into their hearts. Think of other people you know, as many as you can think of, and let them all be part of your heart and your love. Fill them with your love, embrace them with it, giving it freely. The more you give away, the more you have. Think of anyone whom you might know who really needs to be loved, who might be lonely. And pour all your love into that person's heart. Giving freely without expecting any return. Think of anyone whom you either don't like or find difficult or are indifferent towards that person. Pour your love into that person's heart too, so that there are no blockages in your own heart. When you feel that it can flow freely, 
you will feel that that adds to the loving quality in your own heart. Now let that golden vessel that you are grow and grow, getting larger and larger so that can encompass many people more and more. Let them all be part of the love that is contained in that golden vessel. Make it so huge that you can encompass the whole globe and all its inhabitants. And put your attention back on yourself and feel the warmth of the love that is contained within you and the joy that it brings and the ease and well-being which come from giving. Fill yourself with the warmth and the joy and surround yourself with a feeling of ease and well-being. Feeling safe and protected. May there be love and compassion amongst all beings. <clears throat> 